0: I'm Corey Shockey on this special edition of Sound Strategic. I'm talking to John Rain, who's just led a Double S study on Iran's influence uh, around the Middle East and the way that they have developed a sovereign strategic capability to work through militia, through third parties, to reduce their... the risk inherent to them and to dial up or down instability in surrounding states, thereby giving themselves effective strategic depth. I'm Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IIISS, and this is a special edition of Sound Strategic, where I have the fun of grilling my terrific colleague, John Rain, who has the best job title at the IIISS, Senior Advisor for Geopolitical Due Diligence. And we are gonna be talking today about a dossier we have just released on Iran, And its use of proxies and third parties to create strategic depth for itself John was a central figure in running this he is a 33-year veteran of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He was posted in Kuwait, Syria, Saudi Arabia Islamabad worked closely with British and international forces in deployed operations in Afghanistan and in Iraq and helped the rest of the British government national security team figure out future capabilities and strategy. And he even went to college at Jesus College, Cambridge. Uh, John, I'm super happy to have you as a colleague and to have you here talking about Iran today.
1: Thanks, Corey. Great to be here again.
0: So, so, so. Let's start with why is this news? What does the report reveal that we didn't know before?
1: Everyone's been talking about Iran's influence in the Middle East uh, for some time now. But what we wanted to do and what we think we have succeeded in doing in this dossier is to expose, first of all, the, the breadth of that influence and, secondly, to take a really detailed look about what it is made up of in practice. And that has entailed some detailed studies of the variety of relationships, all of which have shown that, in addition to that breadth, there's a huge variety as well in the types of relationships that Iran has fostered. And the third thing that I think is new in all of this is we, we make a strong case for valuing the strategic capability, which is represented by this network, alongside Iran's ballistic weapons capability and its its nuclear program in order to show just how much this capability means to Iran on, on a day-to-day basis and within a, in a strategic framework as it looks at the region and it looks at securing the future of the regime.
0: I love that we at the Double S, like our core sense of ourselves is that we're the producers of data. And this dossier does such a wonderful job of making public all of the open source information about the nature of Iran's relationships with Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, militia in Iraq, the Houthi in Yemen. It creates a fabulous baseline and reference for understanding for people interested in policy Ramifications for governments for businesses that are worried about their exposure if they are doing business in any of these places one of the things that struck me most about the dossier was as we were getting started on it was so much attention had been paid to the Iranian nuclear program and to the ballistic missile program and even by our outstanding DIWS colleagues in the military balance on their conventional forces but uh, nobody had done uh, nearly enough to try and peel back the layers of the onion and figure out what's the nature of Iran's proxy relationships. It was such a big term. Talk a little bit about how we how the dossier explores different kinds of relationships Iran has.
1: Well that's right, Corey. Uh, It had in many ways been neglected as a subject of study, but not as a subject for rhetoric. So a lot of the ways in which it was discussed were too general to be really helpful. So what we wanted to do, first of all, was, as you said, compile an evidence basis, just do a very mechanical study of what these relationships were in practice. And we we called that a, a, a just an audit of the capability, which is a kind of dry and military phrase, but it really served our purposes here. So we stripped away a lot of the, 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 v- the value-loaded rhetoric around what this was and just looked in practice at how th- this operated. So that gave us an understanding, uh, first of all, of how the Iranians were in various theatres operating, but then also how, as a uh, a collective entity, this network was curated. It was actually a national sovereign capability. It wasn't just a series of accidents, opportunities snatched in theatres. That this was systematic. The ability to do this was systematically resourced, curated, looked after, and then then deployed. So we did that um, that study, as you say, which enabled us also to pull together a lot of data that had been scattered around and we drew on some original field work to do this we also drew on on what was available in overt sources and then from that compiled what we hope will be a, a reference work in future and one of the things that we tried to do with the data was not just silo it this is what's happening in one country this is what's happening in another but we also came up with a typology which enabled us to make comparisons between the groups so we we aligned the various groups in a grid to show where they shared characteristics in their relationship with Iran, where they were different, where, for example, they were strategic partners, just tactical partners, where there was some kind of cultural affinity, where there wasn't a strategic affinity or not. And that also enabled us, in the the major second part of this, to make value judgments ourselves about how important these relationships were, both to Iran and to the country concerned. Uh, All up where we came out on this was was if, if you added together all of these relationships, and you added together the way in which they had been looked after and built and developed by the Iranians, then you were looking at a major capability deployed to effect across the region.
0: I think that's really important because for me, the big reveal of the report is that the ability to act through third parties gives them deniability, it reduces the likelihood of escalation into either a direct conventional conflict, which Iran would likely lose, certainly against the United States or Israel, but also against other state forces in the region, um, and gives them the ability to work through others to dial up or down the instability in surrounding states and thereby create Strategic depth for itself. This business about the balance of effective force, people might stumble over, and also sovereign strategic capability. Can you just, because we love ourselves in definitions of terms, what explicitly are we talking about with those two phrases?
1: To take the first of those, uh, uh, what what do we mean by a sovereign capability? Um, we have uh, produced. Two dossiers already on what we describe as sovereign capabilities for Iran, one on the weapons program, nuclear weapons program, and the other on the ballistic missiles. And those sort of give us an idea what we mean by a sovereign capability. It's something that is held centrally, if deployed, will have strategic effect. Secondly, is deliberately, as we say, curated, so it is looked after centrally, it is resourced, the relevant expertise is provided to maintain it at a level of readiness.
0: So what people can understand from that is that it's highly unlikely that Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force take independent decisions that you can exculpate the Iranian political and religious leadership from responsibility for.
1: Well, that's right, and particularly given the very close relationship between Qasem Soleimani and, and the Supreme Leader. It's, it's very unlikely that this is, in any sense, a rogue or um, a, a semi-detached operation. It's absolutely knitted into the power structure and the power projection of, of the Islamic State. Um, however, we also found, as we got into the research, that sometimes, the, oftentimes the, the parameters for engagement were quite broadly set. And that was a, a necessary device to cater for often the very intense imperatives of local conflicts, which could be in which could in some cases be difficult to reconcile with Iran's own strategic objectives. So you had to have a certain amount of slack to allow both Qasem Soleimani and, and deployed commanders and advisors in the field to take decisions in real time. It wasn't always possible to refer them all right back to the supreme leader. But the key thing, as you say, is that this is absolutely knitted into Iran's central sovereign ability to manage its defense and project its force overseas.
0: And, and what, uh, what are the limits and the risks of Iran using this as their weapon of choice?
1: We have a lot of maps in in the dossier by design, and some of the hardest ones to draw were the maps that showed, as it were, the the outer edge of Iranian influence. We didn't want to get too tied by geography in in answering your question on limits. Um, It's a mixture here of the the geographic limits but also the cultural limits that, that this kind of power projection will cope with. First of all, on, on, on the geography, the, the Iranian concerns and the, the Iranian physical projection power are always into regions which are deemed as critical for its own defence. So I think there is there's naturally a, a cordon around Iran within which we will see these capabilities deployed intensely, as Iraq, above all, Syria, Yemen, the Gulf. And then secondarily, as we explain in the dossier, we have seen Iran mobilizing recruits inside Pakistan and Afghanistan. And we've seen some evidence of um, Iranian intent to project beyond that region, but nothing really comparable to what we're seeing inside that cordon. So there's a kind of geographical limit. The cultural limit is trickier. And the the biggest risk... uh, the for the iranians is that this is seen for what it is in many ways which is iranian cultural projection into a largely arabic arab speaking region and some of the uh, some of the rejection that we have seen of iranian hegemony influence call it what you like inside iraq is symptomatic of this so there's a very proud separate iraq uh, sorry arab shia tradition which has within it a nationalist streak. Coming up against that is something that the Iranians have to manage very carefully. And I guess the third limitation on this is the resource one. But so far we've seen that with the exception of the the large-scale funding to to Hezbollah in Lebanon, this is a relatively low-cost operation for the Iranians and that they can afford to keep it going because they're using a small package of highly leveraged advisors or military presence. They're not actually attempting to annex and garrison and and own in any any more uh, resource-intensive way the influence that they have in other countries.
0: So I want to underscore that point about the cost-effectiveness of this um, because one of the things that struck me reading the dossier was – that even though economic sanctions have had an enormous impact on the Iranian economy and on the lives of I- average Iranians, um, you guys make a judgment that it hasn't significantly constricted the, the Iranian uh, support for and use of proxies and that it's relatively insensitive to sanctions that is, if there's one last thing they're going to be spending money on, it's going to be this. Um, talk a little bit more about that that aspect. Yeah, of
1: that's it. a great point, Corey. And, and indeed, one of the one of our key findings was that w- was the, the the steady growth of this capability, despite the amount of pressure that has been put on Iran by neighbors and by the international community. So, if we were to go back to the Founding of the Quds Force shortly after the revolution, 1979, in in early 1980s when it got going, through until now, we see that Iran's ability to do this and a willingness to do this has grown steadily, despite everything else that all the other forms of pressure that have been put on Iran. With reference to sanctions, the the funding mechanisms that are used are an interesting mix of Iranian state funding. Funds made available by other host countries. So I, in Iraq, funding is made available to Iranian partners through the through the structures that were put in place to absorb the militias. Mm. Uh, and then thirdly, there's the funding that the groups themselves raise. Sometimes that's through organized crime, sometimes that's through su- subscription, but they have a local... Sometimes by capturing the local economy, it's, it's, a, it's a basis by through which they can support their activities. So that has, has lessened the cost of this to the Iranians. They have kept the funding streams going as far as they can because they take on obligations which they wouldn't want to negotiate away, such as, for example, to look after people who are... the families of people who are uh, uh, lost fighting in these various militias, so certain things they really need to be able to keep, keep pace payments on. But the overall trajectory this, of this capability, and one of the things that makes it so interesting is almost uninterrupted by, and arguably it's been fueled by, the more conventional pressure that was brought to bear on Iran.
0: I think that's a really important point. And uh, another of the things that really struck me reading the dossier was uh, that, ana- that the best antidote to four countries in the region... Uh, to this kind of Iranian influence is inclusive governance. That it's that Shia communities that are excluded from political representation, social benefits um, are the, the easiest milieu for Iran to get traction. And so the more inclusive and better governance, the, the better resistance Shia and non-Shia communities have. One of the things that has been most interesting to me about the protests in both Lebanon and in Iraq is that Shia are joining in both of those protests against corruption of the government. And that suggests to me that one of the risks Iran runs in their excitement about this as their weapon of choice is associating themselves with poor governance and with corruption. Do you see signs of that?
1: There's absolutely a, a risk for the Iranians. Um, whether they they like it or not, they're, they're part of a new status quo in some of these countries. So they will be held responsible. But you know, this is an interesting departure for them because one of the one of the principles behind this capability has been that Iran will avoid taking responsibility for other states. And whilst working to ensure a presence inside a state which guarantees its interests, most notably Hezbollah in Lebanon, it has avoided taking on responsibility for other states. And now paradoxically, because the success of this policy, particularly in Iraq, it is having to do that is now associated with with the performance of states. If you if you ally that with the the inevitable difficulty amongst Iraqi, Arab, Shia, in accepting this dominant role inside their country from the Iranians, you do have a recipe for at least limiting uh, and possibly generating serious pushback against Iranian dominance. I would say we also found that in cases where the Iranians have come up against this again, they were sensitive to the risk and they do tend to to modulate their influence in order to retain it. Uh,
0: Yeah. So what is Iran's narrative around these capabilities? Do they? um, It it seems like in many cases, you're right, they they want to avoid publicly acknowledged affiliations, but it doesn't seem to be entirely consistent. For example, it sounds like from news reports that Qasem Soleimani was not only in Iraq, during these protests against the government, but chaired a government meeting about whether the prime minister should have to resign. How does that news fit into what you found?
1: First of all, we found that the the preferred model for a network of influence is very much that it's comprised of outsiders and minorities. Um, This has resonance for Shia theology, it's a technique that enabled the Iranians to foster influence inside country on a not necessarily shared religious basis, just a grievance basis. Mm-hmm. And that was integral to the formation of this structure. So the excluded minority was the one which the Iranians would be prepared to back. And in many cases, that jumped across sectarian divides. Interesting. So now they're, they're in something of a bind because they're associated with the preservation of state power in both Iraq and Syria. And this, this is probably just beyond the limits of this particular capability. It takes them into some very challenging areas of statecraft. Mm. What they have to work out is those countries where they are so heavily associated, whether or not they now conspicuously, publicly, dial down their influence, or whether they harden on to preserve it. In Iraq, in particular, they're in a particularly risky position because of the uh, strength of feeling, popular strength of feeling, against the way in which they have interfered in the expression of the popular will.
0: Yeah, nationalism turns out to also be a powerful force. Absolutely, absolutely. Why has it been so difficult for countries in the region and for countries like Britain and the United States who are deeply involved in trying to create um, a more stable uh, and better governed region? Why has this capability been so difficult for us to counter?
1: First of all, the Iranians have taken a capability approach to this so they've seriously fostered this ability and deployed it with intent with clear instructions, parameters and resources and that's, that's not really been matched by anything comparable in the West where we have tried in a number of theaters to counterbalance Iranian influence projected through this capability with pretty conventional capabilities and that that hasn't worked. I mean, in some ways, what we're dealing with here is the Iranians have developed a concept familiar to ourselves of fighting by, with, and through the people, but they've taken it a stage further and developed it to the point where they can do this with confidence in multiple theatres, and more importantly, the, the, their readiness to deploy this is so much greater than our own the other reason is of course they're not constrained by the same legal and uh, values considerations as we are in the west there are many many of the things that the iranians have done here which uh, would not be should not be permitted in uh, in western countries and in other countries who subscribe to the, to the rule of law so they are an outlaw country an outlaw state and they operate as such when they're developing and deploying this capability and I think that I think the third reason that this has been very difficult to to counter is that um, up up until now, and this is what we we've, we've been trying to communicate in the dossier, we have collectively underestimated how important this capability is for the Iranians in almost any conflict. So this is the way in which Iran fights, and we have tended to look at this as a function of either political influence or the accidents of a particular theater rather than acknowledging that this is the way that Iran fights and if you want to fight Iran you have to be able to take on this capability.
0: So what role is left for conventional military and strategic assets in the Middle East given what you just said John?
1: Well the import of the of the dossiers is that we need to think again about what constitutes a balance of power or what constitutes strategic advantage in the Middle East. And up until now the accumulation of conventional weaponry has been the orthodoxy in Middle Eastern countries in, in the modern era to deal with perceived peer-to-peer conflict or to deter from the use of um other non-conventional means, weapons of mass destruction, terrorism. We're arguing that whilst that conventional balance of force has not been disturbed by this, and you can see every year from our military balance who has the hardware in the region and still the upper hand is with countries who are opposed to Iran, we're saying that the, effect the balance of effective force, so the force that is used on a day-to-day basis to get your way has been disturbed, So we're we're seeking to simulate a debate here about how, in response to that, the techniques, the capabilities, the equipment, the skills that are built up amongst Iran's adversaries, as independent countries or within coalitions, how that is rebalanced to deal with this. Um, There is clearly still a role for conventional weapons systems, um, not least to deter and to provide a capability to conduct, for example, maneuver warfare, which has been extremely important recently in the fight, for example, against Daesh. But what we are arguing for is a reconsideration to where the the balance should be between those weapon systems and those systems capabilities we need to counter this, which is, for those countries who are adversaries and rivals of Iran, which is the principal weapon of choice of the adversary.
0: Unquestionably true that if we didn't have conventional force capabilities, Iran wouldn't have uh, the need, right, if they could win a conventional war, they might be satisfied with that. What this sovereign capability does, though, is marry their sense of being a revolutionary state with uh, warfighting capabilities that reinforce the ideology in a way that conventional forces don't. So even if they had the ability to match um, some of their potential adversaries with conventional forces. It wouldn't have this added ideological advantage that using this does.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point, Corey. one of the things that we did uh, bring out in in the study is how deeply rooted this capability is in the doctrine of the revolution and, indeed, in particularly the Iranian interpretation of Shia theology. And a, a couple of concepts... Uh, which would, which would be familiar to Shia transnationalism and then and then mobilisation, uh, have been central to the, to the to the construction of this capability. Having a means to protect Shia interests, including shrines, uh, having a means to interfere inside countries where those interests are threatened. These are now absolutely ingrained in. In the Iranian regime's concept of defense. So, so you're right, there's something about this capability which is going to be coeval with the regime itself. It's really hard to see them being able to abandon this, even if they gained ascendancy in more conventional means. I think they would still want, for those deep cultural reasons, very practical reasons, that this kind of works for them, I think they'd want to retain it.
0: And does it change the diplomatic calculations, or should it change the diplomatic calculations of Iran's rivals in the region?
1: Diplomatically, this does, this presents a uh, a choice. I think either we put this in the category of capabilities which have to be, which must be um, reduced in the region in order to ensure stability, and that we choose to do that through. Force through sanction, through pressure, or and this is where the choice comes in. Um, maybe because this capability is knitted into settlements within countries, either those that have already been concluded or those that will have to be when once the shooting stops in Syria and Yemen, and so and on. So we take the opportunity to, to negotiate with the Iranians what their legitimate demands are and find a way of meeting those in negotiations, which removes the need on their part to have armed militias. So there's a choice here. Um, It may be that, as ever in diplomacy, it's going to be a mixture of the two, between sticking to the hard line combination of tough diplomacy and sanctions to effectively disarm Iran's capability, or something which acknowledges the peculiar nature of this, the way which it sits inside polities and settlements and suggests a more negotiated, more actively diplomatic solution.
0: John Rain, thank you for giving your vast and considerable talents to the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Thank you for your leadership of this terrific project on Iran, and thank you for talking with us today.
1: Kari, thank you, and for your sponsorship of this dossier too. Thank you.